And just like that, we're off. We're off and running with episode 70. 70. How many things do you know that are 70? How many things do you know that are 70? I mean, think about that. Humans, on average, die a little after 70. We don't make it much further than 70. So if this podcast is anything like a human, we're on our last legs here. We're in a deathbed, but we're going to make it. We're going to keep it. We're going to make the 80, 90, 100, 2000 even. We're never stopping this ball from rolling. We're gonna. This ball is going to be rolling down the hill of scientific advancement for the next 100 years until I'm 74 and then I die. Episode 70 features the great Dr. Mike Poland. I appreciate you for being here. Dr. Mike Poland is a research geophysicist with the Cascades Volcano Observatory and the current scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Now, I'm not saying Mike Poland is the smartest volcanologist in the world, but what I am saying is of anyone I know in the whole planet that knows about volcanoes, no one even knows a fraction of the stuff that Mike Poland knows. So that means that in my world, Mike Poland, smartest, smartest, most knowledgeable man in the world of volcanoes, in my world. Now, maybe you know some dude, maybe you, maybe your uncle read a book or two, and he knows a lot as well. But Mike Poland, for my money, smartest volcanologist there is. Mike Poland's the type of guy that, you remember that show you used to be able to phone a friend who wants to be a millionaire? That's what it's called. That show, you used to be able to, you had, you, you were asked a question and it was like a multiple choice question and you could phone a friend. You could like call someone up and always, always, it would be a question about volcanoes. And even if the dude on the show knew Mike Poland, he would still call his friend Brad down at the hardware store. Every time they call the dude on the phone, he doesn't know a single thing. He doesn't even know to, how to answer the phone. Sometimes he's just like, hello, is anyone? He can't, he, he's, he, the phone's on mute and he doesn't even know. Listen, okay, people on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you have to know one person who knows any one thing. You just have to. And somehow, time and time again, you find your one friend who knows zero information about the universe. I don't get it. I frankly don't get it. But if I was on a phone a friend and I needed to ask the question, is Yellowstone going to blow up? And how do we measure whether or not it's going to blow up? How do we understand what's happening beneath the surface of Yellowstone? How do we understand that sort of information? What do we do to learn about it? I would phone my friend, Dr. Mike Poland, and I wouldn't phone anyone else. Listen, I'm not phoning my friend Nate, okay, who works down at, at Wegmans. I'm not phoning him because he doesn't know anything about volcanoes. And that's facts, okay? And that's facts. And I give facts on the show, and I give, I give probably seven or eight facts per episode, and that's maybe the first fact I gave. So we talked to Mike Poland about that. I, I, I address some of those questions. How do you study what's happening beneath the surface? What's very interesting is the way in which Michael Poland uses gravity, measuring the surface gravity to figure out what's happening beneath the surface. What is going on in the magma chambers that you cannot directly access beneath the surface of the earth? And how do you use that information to learn about the volcanoes? How do you use that information to learn about stuff moving around beneath the surface? It's very interesting. We talk about much more. We talk about science communication because the USGS, and particularly the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, has many, many great programs. I encourage you to check out their website and check out their YouTube channel. They have many great scientific outreach programs. And if if I will be brazen and say 
they are one of the few governmental agencies that I feel like does science outreach at a high level and at an effective level. And I'm very impressed by it. So, you know, I've had problems on the show before with getting people from certain organizations to come on the show. And I get the sense that certain governmental organizations or even certain scientific organizations, doesn't have to be government, don't believe in the power of scientific communication but mike poland does so we spend a lot of time talking about that how do we make it better how do we get back ground on this because there's a lot of people out there who know so much stuff but they don't tell anyone and if you know things and you're not telling people things well how useful is your knowledge you know you could know a million things and sit in your bedroom all day and those million things you know don't mean much all right if no one's phoning you up from who wants to be a millionaire your knowledge about volcanoes doesn't matter very much i uh, appreciate you tuning in people please support the apple podcast rate it five stars if you listen on an iphone i can't explain to you how much it helps literally one five star rating will move the show up 10 spots 20 spots 50 spots on the overall podcast charts please follow the show on youtube subscribe whatever patreon paypal the state of the universe.com please it helps so much i cannot stress how much it helps 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 we need support to keep the show going and i appreciate everyone listening because you listening is support okay and i appreciate that more than anything give it up for the great dr mike poland and i appreciated that because no one else at the time would like adhere and follow their promise to me that they would help share the podcast. I don't know why it was. I don't know if after they did the show, they're like, God, this kid, he's terrible at this. What, what was he doing? <laughs> I don't know what it was, but uh, you you shared shared it. So, you know, that's one of the things about science, about science communication is if people aren't willing to, you could have the best science communicators in the world, but if they're doing it in a vacuum and no one's listening, then it doesn't yeah. help anyone, right? Yeah, and I, I also feel that in, in science, we have the, ability to support one another. So um, when you see uh, somebody who's who's tweeting or Facebooking or whatever about, about some and, um, and maybe trying to answer some questions or, or uh, there's some folks that are maybe questioning them, uh, there's the ability to, to jump into sort of an independent you know, researcher that may be working on a similar similar question or topic and saying, you know, we, we fully support what this person found. Here's our take on it, um, just so that the the public or the, the people that are asking the questions can see that there's um, uh, many people working on common problems, and we all sort of uh, converge on some similar answers. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think social media adds an interesting element to it, though, because you have all these people who are like vying for followers. It's one of the weirdest things in our entire culture, and um, I hate it. I, I, I think it's interesting, actually, you have companies like Instagram who are moving in a direction where they're going to take away follower counts. You're not going to be able to see them, which oh, okay. might be the best thing to happen to social media because then you'll have people sharing content because they enjoyed creating it and they enjoyed making it and not because they can, you know, get clout or get a certain number of followers in, in, uh, in response to it. So I actually think that's a good thing. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, disagree with that. I've been watching some some people that put out misinformation, and they're extremely proud of their follower counts. Right. Uh, and and I think part of what uh, drives them, um, I mean, some of it's money, but some of it's pats on the back too, and seeing, oh yeah, I've got however many many followers now. Um, that's a big part of of who they are. So that would be an interesting model to sort of remove that as a as a carrot, and then. Yeah, perhaps you sort of whittle away at some of the people that are just doing things for pats on the back and to 
to reach the huge huge number of people in the shortest period of time. Yeah, and uh, you know the the reason that they are going to do away with the follower count is actually for the mental health of kids, because these kids uh, are like you know comparing follower counts to one another at school, and it's it's incredibly bad for your mental health to do that. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just another source of uh, potential things like bullying and so yes, forth. Because now you have like it's it's almost like your popularity now can actually be quantized, which is problematic. You know, you remember you were in school, you knew who the popular kids were, you knew yeah. who the unpopular kids were, but the, but there was no quantitative measure of that. You know, um, right. so there was some fluidity you could say in the in the schoolyard, and now it's re- I can only imagine it's a weird culture to be a part of as a kid, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. You know, when I was a kid and you were giving out Valentines on, on Valentine's that you had to make sure you give one to everyone in the, in the class. I was just um, thinking about that the other day. Yeah, <laughs> about how you had to give one out to everyone. And you're like, I don't want to give one to Sarah. I don't like Sarah. But, you know. <laughs> but you, you did it because it, it was the right thing to do. And, yep. and I guess social media now existing outside of those sorts of requirements or those constraints can uh, – yeah, I didn't think of it in terms of messing with with kids in that way, but I could I could cer- certainly see how that would happen. Yeah. Oh, but we're not here to talk about social media. Well, we actually <laughs> will talk about social media later because I think you do a particularly good job, and the USGS Volcanoes group does a particularly good job. And we'll come back to that. But last time you were on the show, the title of the episode was I, I don't know what it, I don't know verbatim what it was, but I had the word Yellowstone volcano super volcano in the title. Then, in the emails that I was sending you leading up to this interview, I was once again saying the term Yellowstone supervolcano. But I come to find out, Mike Poland, that you are not a fan of the word supervolcano. So, let, can, I, can I quickly, you know, give my understanding of that term? And sure. then you can try to, to break it down. Because this is how I use that term, and this is what I thought that term meant. So, I'm a, obviously an astronomer, an astrophysicist. And we talk about novas, kilonovas, and supernovas. And those three terms have a quantitative measure. They, they indicate how much light we are receiving from a given um, event. So a nova, you don't receive much light. A kilonova, you receive, you know, a thousand times more. A supernova, mm-hmm. you're receiving a thousand times more than a kilonova, etc. Um, so we have some quantitative measure to go by, to put these into bins and then, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, roller coasters, too. I always wanted to be a roller coaster engineer. I said to myself, when I get older, I want to do that. Then I said to myself in, like, seventh grade, I'm not smart enough. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be able to learn all that math. Now I'm doing way more math somehow. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the point is, sorry, there's, like, some craziness happening outside my apartment that distracted me. The point is, in the roller coaster community, you have categories. You have hyper, giga, and strata, and they represent... 200 feet to 300 feet is a hyper coaster. 300 to 400 is a giga coaster. 400 to 500 is a strata coaster. So we have quantitative measures. And that's the way I always perceived the supervolcano to be, is that it represented some, some quantitative measure. But does it? Well, sort of. Um, the, the, the way that – the reason it's, it's – the, the parallel, I guess, with the kind of nova, supernova, that sort of thing would be that a – supervolcano has had an eruption of a certain magnitude. Um, in volcanology, we use this volcano explosivity index, which is kind of like the Richter scale for volcanic eruptions. And so a VEI, volcano explosivity index, eight eruption 
is qualified as a super eruption. It's something on the order of a thousand cubic kilometers of material or greater that came out. So these are really spectacularly big eruptions. And Yellowstone has had some of these. Um, what bothers me about the term is that Yellowstone has also had very small eruptions. And so calling it a supervolcano, uh, to me, well, there's three problems with it. First, I think it's a bit, it's a bit trite. Um, this is like years ago when everybody put uber in front of a word to, to mean very, you know, that's mm -hmm. uber cool, that kind of thing. I think it, I just, might still do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's just sort of silly. Right. Um, I think it's also, it's misleading because it tends to suggest that volcanoes only have this kind of eruption. So uh, Yellowstone's a super volcano. People are familiar with this because that was the title of this BBC documentary uh, and, and the, uh, the, the sort of docudrama movie from some years back. And so this is maybe all Yellowstone does. And of course, Yellowstone has a huge diversity of things. So it would be like calling something a supernova that can have all kinds of behaviors right. that run a range from very small to very large. And then I think it's also misapplied. Uh, there are many systems that are just labeled as supervolcanoes, which have never had the, the VEI-8 sized eruption. So... I dislike the term because I just think it, it oversimplifies, it's misapplied, and it's mis misleading. Um, I, I have no problem with the term super eruption. So a VEI-8 eruption is a super eruption. That's like your supernova term. But volcanoes uh, can produce any range of things. So as my, my colleague Jamie Farrell at the University of Utah, he likes to say, there's no such thing as a super volcano. There are just volcanoes that have had super eruptions. And I, I think that's quite wise of him. Yeah. So what do you think that there could be the, a development of a, a, a good scale to talk about this? You, you mentioned that there is a scale, but I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it might be um, a little too much for the average person to grasp if you were to rate every single Vol volcanic uh, eruption on the scale because I imagine that, that there's a lot of them. You know, volcanoes erupt, yeah, maybe frequently to the point where it would be um, redundant to report every single one of them. You know, well, and yeah, and and it's also difficult to to quantify some of them because it's an explosivity index, right? Uh, that's mostly based on the volume of the eruption. Well, what about something like Kilauea in 2018 that had a humongous eruption? Um, it was not an explosive one. So you can't really use this explosivity index, which is a measure of the size of an eruption, to quantify volcanoes that don't have major explosions. So it might work for something like Crater Lake-sized eruption uh, or one of the big Yellowstone ones or, or something like that. But then it, it can't really easily be applied to things like what happened at Kilauea, which is you know, the largest eruption we've seen at that volcano in mm -hmm. the last several hundred years. So it is a difficult uh, thing to wrap your head around. And it's something that, you know, of course, if you're sort of a casual volcanologist or, or somebody that just is from the public trying to understand this, it gets gets pretty confusing. Yeah, I, I always wrestle with this when it comes to, you know, what language you use when you're going to advertise something. Because the internet has taught us that terms like supervolcano attract eyeballs. You know, yeah. and so wrestling with that is interesting because, you know, typing typing Yellowstone volcano and typing Yellowstone super volcano are two very different things, and I think people perceive them in very different ways. 
And so I, I, I struggle with that a lot. Yeah, I, I do as well. And, and I, the super, super volcano term is very well known and understood in some ways to mean that these are, are big explosions. But, uh, and I, I don't kid myself that, you know, it's going to go away anytime soon because it's in all these documentary titles and, and uh, inevitably, even if it's not in the title of the documentary, it comes up in conversation in, in documentaries about Yellowstone or, or Toba in Indonesia or, or wherever. Um, but I guess I'd like to do my best to, to try to contextualize that and make sure that it's understood that, you know, the most likely kind of eruption at Yellowstone uh, when magma reaches the surface is not a big explosion. It's a lava flow. Um, and that's something that is not conveyed by super volcano. Uh, and, and that's, that's just one of these reasons I don't like that term. That's fair enough. Um, it seems, it seems like it's, uh, that the, the complexity of it is so great that it would be tough to quantify any one measure and actually give an accurate depiction, right? The way yeah. hurricanes, you can, you know, you can base it off of uh, wind speeds or something. Um, it seems like you're put into a position where that's rather impossible to do due to the geology of these uh, events. It, it is difficult. I mean, we can lean back on these on these huge uh, volumes of, uh, of material that come out in some of these explosions. But uh, I think it also makes a boogeyman of some of these, these big explosions when um, much more likely are one step down on this VEI explosivity index scale. Uh, something like a crater lake-sized eruption, the, the thing that destroyed Mount Mazama 7,700 years ago. If that happened today, that would have a pretty profound impact on, on global climate. And those kinds of eruptions globally happen every 500 to 1,000 years or so, whereas the, the huge super eruptions, you know, those happen on timescales of maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Right. So uh, in terms of what may impact uh, humans on on our lifetimes, our life scales, it's one of these smaller sized eruptions, but they're still big. So I, I think sometimes we we sort of miss the things that are more likely to impact us in favor of things that are bigger, sure, but much, much, much less likely to, to happen on, on our in our lifetimes. Yeah, no, it's a tightrope in science communication because yeah. you, you can attract such a large amount of viewers with those terms. And in a way that could be good for the science, right? To get as many people involved as possible. It's almost like you're sure. tr you're duping them, you're you're tricking them into clicking on your your communication, however you want to do it, videos, right. audio whatever. And then you 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 break it down for them and you make them leave with an appreciation. But you run the risk of headline reading, right? Yeah, um, and and of course there's tabloids that have made this into a cottage industry yes. and that's something that I I sort of refuse to uh, go down that kind of path. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, finding I'll, the ha finding the happy medium is, is I imagine, right. a tough thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's already spectacular enough. We don't need to sensationalize it, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that Yellowstone is so uh, attractive in general. It doesn't have to be sensationalized as a super volcano to be really interesting. It's the exactly. you know, yeah. first national park in the world. It's uh, the home of the Buffalo and Old Faithful. And I mean, it's it's an amazing place on its own. It doesn't need to have this this spectacular tag associated with it, which is, is kind of misleading anyway. I 100% agree. Now, this is something that interests me too about what you do, Mike Pollan, because I was thinking about um, 
the way in which you conduct science versus the way in which I conduct science, we're in two very different fields. Obviously, we should be doing similar scientific methods, but mm-hmm. we, we are in very different um, environments, we'll say. And so one of the, mm-hmm. the things that interests me is that I've been to Yellowstone, and we've talked about this before, and when I see the ground boiling and I see the and I feel the earth shaking and I see wildfires and I see geysers blowing up my my brain the neanderthal part the monkey part of my brain says let's get out of here right now like why are, why am I here why am I standing on this boardwalk when right next to me I can see like a, a, the ground is is boiling there and there's steam vents and there's stuff flying everywhere and if I fell down there I would probably die why am I here what am I doing to myself and <laughs> The thing is, in your field, you have to take that that Neanderthal part of your brain and you have to say, we can't draw conclusions from this, we have to do science correctly, etc. But I don't have anything like that in my field. You know, in my field, we're, we're not worrying about anything that could potentially kill us generally. We're not worrying about black holes in the solar system. We're not worrying about kilonovas blowing us up. Generally, we're safe from almost all of that stuff. So do you find it tough to do that sometimes to like suppress that part of your brain that makes the connection earthquake equals bad let's run away I, I suppose um, in in a place like Yellowstone not so much only because um, it's so uh, it it's it's been there for long enough you know the and and there's enough vigilance you know the park service for example is very good about monitoring uh, where thermal activity is occurring relative to boardwalks, for example. Mm-hmm. And they're very frequently forced to move boardwalks because these thermal areas are, are super dynamic. You know, hot spring may pop up right under a boardwalk. And, and when that happens, um, they're sort of very uh, aware of these kinds of things and they close down areas and move things around as needed. But they have I, to I relocate the entire boardwalk in that scenario? Oh, yeah. That, this has happened on you know more than one occasion where sometimes boardwalks are closed. Uh, this was a case in near Old Faithful in uh, September of 2018. There was a uh, an unusual geyser eruption near Old Faithful, and it was sort of associated with this overall uh, change in behavior of a place called Geyser Hill, which is a few hundred meters from Old Faithful, and uh, it had some new. There's some new features that formed right next to a boardwalk, and some of the boardwalks were getting splattered with with uh, hot mud, so they closed that that boardwalk system down for a period of weeks. And then that activity just died out. And the assessment was by the geologists that were looking at that system was, okay, this was sort of a, a transient thing. And the, the new features that formed died and everything kind of went back. To normal, so they reopened those boardwalks. But in the Norris Geyser Basin area in 2003, there was a general heating of the area and it started breaking down some of the boardwalks that happened to be going right through the area that was heated. So they completely removed and, and rebuilt these boardwalks in different places. So you could still see these areas, but they were in safer places because I think the Park Service knows very well that there's a tendency for people to to want to step off these things. And anyone that's been to Yellowstone has almost certainly seen folks walking off boardwalks to get a picture or, or something something silly like that. Oh, yeah. I, I saw a lot of that. Yeah. I saw a ton of it. I was like... Mm, I see I have my wife with me so she kind of you know she keeps me on a leash doesn't let me <laughs> get or I might have been one of those dumb people too um, but like, <laughs> it, it's it's tempting but you know the boardwalks are there for a reason and and fortunately the park staff are really pretty good about reminding folks to to make sure that uh you know 
please yeah. don't uh, <laughs> please stay on the boardwalk. It's there for your safety. Right. Yeah. It's it's such a an interesting interesting place. So to, getting getting back to that that question, um, did did you find that happening at the beginning of your career more, where maybe you you got tripped up by the more primal instinct? I I think. I'm not even sure I'd say the, the beginning of my, my career. It's been sort of throughout my career where there is this balance between being so struck by uh, some of the natural processes you're seeing that you can sort of tend to forget the, the dangerous environment you're in. Um, so, for example, being at Kilauea, watching lava erupt, uh, it's mesmerizing. And uh, you have to make sure that you never forget that, you know, this is an active volcano. It can do unpredictable things and, uh, and, and safety needs to come first. And that's something that I think in, in general, uh, we've gotten better about over time. We're, we're much less cavalier about safety than, you know, when I talk to some of my, uh, my mentors who've been around for decades, they, the things they did, you know, a few decades ago, there's no way we would, we would even think about doing, um, today. Uh, so, can you I give an we're, example we're, of so, of something that you remember that really struck you as crazy? Uh, well, a lot of times they were walking around, say, in uh, very gassy areas without without respirators. Mm. Um, you know, just because the they said, "Well, I'll just you know walk out of the way or whatnot." Um, nowadays, we wear gas badges that tell us the concentrations of certain types of gases. We have respirators. Um, we have a whole program devoted to uh, respiration. Uh, that was especially strong at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, since that's where they were dealing with the most volcanic gases. And you had to uh, uh, even take uh, a spirometry test where they test your lung capacity at a doctor's office to make sure you were even uh, approved to go into an area where you might have to use a respirator. So those sorts of things weren't around a few decades ago. Um, but we've gotten much more cognizant of the hazard and then uh, taken steps to try to minimize our exposure. Hmm. Something that I, I notice, I always try to do a ton of research for the interviews, like a, like a good inter interviewer. And searching your name on Google gets a ton of articles that you're mentioned in, say by CNN or other, you know, other news agencies that presumably email you and ask you some questions and you give them a response and they pick the stuff they want out of it. Um, that's what I assume happens. I don't know how it actually works. But you were mentioned in some articles this past year for Steamboat Geyser breaking records. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it is so interesting. How do these people reach out to you? Do they reach out to you with questions? Because their their articles are almost framed like Steamboat Geyser's breaking records. Is Yellowstone ready to blow? You know, that sort sure. of um, impending doom type question. How, how do you handle all of those? Do you respond to all of them? Do you try to carve out hours and hours out of your week to to respond to them all and how do you address I, these questions right it, well i mean they're very common questions and i i get sort of the same question a lot and and that's a good one right like uh hey with all this geyser activity at yellowstone how do we know that the thing is not going to explode and it's not just from news outlets they're also from you know members of the general public that may have seen something online or may just have this this question and we have a, a, a sort of a, a general email box for the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. And so I take a lot of uh, questions there. And then, you know, we get a lot of random questions from, from news media. And I just, I, I have kind of a policy that I um, 
I hold myself to where I'll answer every question um, to within reason. If, if someone keeps coming back to me with either the same question or goes a bit uh, goes a bit conspiracy theory on you and, and you know, is, yeah. is maybe insulting or, or whatnot, then I, I disengage after a certain point. But um, I think, you know, people have honest questions and I think it makes sense, right? If you heard that there was a world's tallest geyser started uh, erupting much more frequently than it ever has. Yeah, I think I would have questions too. You know, for sure. Yeah, I'm getting ready to build a bunker. Up. Yeah, right. So um, these are questions I think are important and they're natural ones. And and I don't want to assume that anyone has any uh, bias or 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 some other kind of motivation other than curiosity and concern for asking these questions. So yeah, I'll answer every question that that I get, um, whether it's a news media or a, a, a private individual. And I, I tend to have more. Uh, it's not always true, but I have much more enjoyable conversations with uh, members of the public because um, the news media sometimes have agendas. And, and uh, what I often see is uh, an interview I gave with one agency gets picked up by another agency. And it's a bit like that game of telephone where mm-hmm. the more you tell the same story and it passes from from person to person, the more it sort of gets twisted. And you know, by three articles down the line – uh, it's now that you know scientists don't know what's going to happen, and you know Yellowstone could explode. And it's like, no. <laughs> have Have you ever had to reach out to an agency and be like, "Hey, I didn't like. I need you to retract that. I didn't say that," or, or you yes. feel like you have? Yes, I have. I and it's. I I think. I mean, I've I developed a a personal philosophy that it's just not okay to get that stuff wrong. Right. Um. Whether you're quoting me or you're you're coming up with something out of the blue that's incorrect, that's not okay. Um. For some of the kind of conspiracy theory videos and stuff, there's not much you can do. And, and I think engaging with the promoters of that material is uh, not especially um, productive. Uh, no, I, I agree with, with you. People yeah. that have questions, you know, that may have seen those videos, that's very productive because I think there are, for the most part, people ask honest questions and, and they may see something online and not know whether or not this is kind of conspiracy theory ish. Um, it, it may sound perfectly reasonable. So I have no problem you know, certainly talking to, to folks about those sorts of things. Um, but then for the news media ones, yes, I've uh, nowadays on, on websites, most of the authors have links to email or, or Twitter or whatnot. And I'll, um, I'll contact them because if something's wrong in an article, for the most part, uh, people that write the articles, they want to get it right. right. Um, they, of course, want to attract readers, but they want to get the story correct. And so they're willing to, to – um, make changes to their articles. If you can point out something that's factually incorrect and, and not just, you know, you, you, you can't really uh, complain about people using buzzwords or, or things like that. But if they get things that are factually wrong, then yeah, I definitely will, will email people and say, you know, I think maybe you might want to change part of your article because, you know, one article I remember said, Grand Teton National Park sat directly above the Yellowstone supervolcano. I said, well, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and for the most part, they're they're very happy to to make those changes because they do want to get it right. Right. Yeah. I I get a lot of uh. This is this always is weird to me when I talk to people in different fields because I think I always assume astronomy and physics sits atop the conspiracy throne. Um, right. And then I talked to an archaeologist and he was telling me no 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 pseudo archaeology is like insanely popular online. And he pointed out to me the fact that Ancient Aliens is, is a show that gets 2 million viewers a week. 
and is just <laughs> pseudo archaeology essentially. Um, and now, what conspiracy theories do you get told? Like, what would people reach out to you and they're like, the volcano is hiding uh, an underground bit? Like, what do they say to you? What are the popular? Well, uh, the mostly what I I see is um, people saying that USGS is lying. Right, we're withholding information about earthquakes. Of we're, uh, you know, basically trying to uh, make people think that Yellowstone is not about to erupt. Um, and I actually appreciate it when people reach out to me and ask me that question. Right. Um, even if it's in an accusatory manner, because I think you know, look at some of the things that are online, and it's very inflammatory. You know, the USGS is playing with our lives and so forth. So. If you see that sort of thing and it seems to make sense to you looking at whatever weird data or signals they propose yeah i, I think i would be upset too and, and i also frankly i totally get the idea of not trusting government um i don't trust government as well uh, at mm -hmm. times right um of course so but but when people ask those questions it gives me a chance to engage and provide additional information. So for example, in the case of Steamboat Geyser, um, if somebody wants to talk about, well, you know, how do you know that Yellowstone's not heating up because this, this, all the geysers are going crazy and say, okay, well, first of all, all the geysers are not going crazy, right? Steamboat Geyser, sure, it's gone into this cycle of more eruptions. The geyser next to it, Echinus, hardly erupts anymore. Well, you know, other geysers nearby, you would think if there was a big general heating or something like that, you would see geysers going crazy all over the place. So one geyser in a place that has half the geysers on Earth, that's not an indicator, right? That's what geysers do. Geysers are actually, for the most part, kind of random like this. They go through phases of more or less activity. And then you can start to have those conversations and, and also point out some common sense things that, that may not be immediately apparent. Uh, for example, the idea that we're hiding earthquakes. We couldn't, even if we wanted to. That's not something we could do because people all over, scientists all over the world look at Yellowstone seismicity. They research it because it's an interesting problem. If mm -hmm. we were hiding earthquakes, it would be immediately apparent to all of these institutions that have no loyalty or fealty to USGS, and they would be screaming their heads off about the bad job we're doing. Even more basic, if we were hiding earthquakes, there are thousands of people that live in and around Yellowstone, they would feel these things and be talking about them. So, you know, I, I have, you know, people that tell me, well, I don't, I don't trust the mainstream media because they're, they're greedy and they'll, they'll say anything. So if they were greedy and they could break a story on Yellowstone being much more active than anyone knew it, don't you think they would? I mean, that would yeah. drive up all kinds of attention for them. So the fact that they aren't, might suggest that so there's some common sense like things like that that aren't immediately apparent but once i can start having a conversation with people i can i can point out some of the places where these conspiracy theories just absolutely fall apart in in a very common sense way so it's not very hard to convince people once you can have that conversation the challenge is getting to the point where you can have the conversation yeah do you know what the uh, i think it's called the backfire effect I think that's what it's mm. called in psychology are you familiar with that no i'm not so the the i Hopefully, I'm not getting that wrong. I talk about this a lot, and it's like scary. I think it's called the backfire effect. Um, it probably has numerous names, but anyway, the the idea is that um, people, you can reinforce people's beliefs by telling them their beliefs are wrong in a smug way, and I see that a lot mm. in the scientific community, 
And I yeah. try my best to do what you do and to not do that. So you see this a lot in politics where, you know, you might point out that something a politician says, uh, let's say something, you might try to point out that something Donald Trump said was false. And you might be talking to his supporters and you'll be doing it in a demeaning or a smug way. Right. And that actually has the reverse consequence and it makes them even in the even in light of evidence it makes them get on the the bandwagon even further and this happens yeah. in science oh yeah absolutely and yeah, so I, I try to do what you do and i try to to talk to people and i get a lot of people that reach out to me probably not as many as you but i get some people that reach out to me through the show um with all sorts of different beliefs and one of the things that i've actually done over the last year is I began going on a, a different show and sitting in your seat. And this show is a show that I know has a huge, huge audience of conspiracy theorist um, type of ideologies. They do a lot of shows on, on AI taking over the world and aliens and, and this sort of thing. And I go on there as a scientist and I talk to them about science, about what we know, what we don't know, about reasoning, about all of these things. And Something that you just brought up is what I found to be the most effective way to address these people. And it is to illustrate to them how much of a conspiracy it would have to be for their beliefs to be true. To the point yeah. where almost everyone that isn't them would have to be in on it. That's what I try to do. Um, this is common when you talk about flat earth. This is common when you talk about uh, moon landings being faked. All of it is is to the point where everyone would have to be in on it except for you. And I feel like when you can break down that wall and explain that to them and make them see that, then it, you can really get through to them because your goal, after all, at least the way I perceive it, your goal when you do this sort of communication should not be to convince someone that they're wrong. I think your goal should be to lay out evidence and have them convince their, themselves. I agree with that. Absolutely. And that's that very much follows on the, the scientific side of things, right? That here is the evidence. Now you make an informed decision. Right. Um, but I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in that uh, this is a, sort of a l providing this evidence is, is the best way to, to, to point out to people that, you know, here's here's what you can verify fairly easily now now think about it your, yourself and and this idea too that some of these conspiracy theories are so I, I like the way you put it to say that you know you would have to be the only one in on it that that makes a lot of sense you know in, in this day and age where it's you know there's we talk all about leaking and and you know, people with insider information that are willing to share it um, something like Yellowstone which would be of huge importance to humanity mm-hmm uh, if it were about to explode and there's thousands of scientists working on it. The Yellowstone Volcano Observatory is a consortium of eight institutions, federal institutions, state institutions, independent research organizations. And you're going to tell me that no one, none of them, none of the scientists at any of these institutions or that are independent of them will leak information that actually Yellowstone is about to erupt. No way, right? I mean, exactly. obviously, there are yeah. people all over the place that were screaming about this. So, um, yeah, I think you, you point things out like that, and, and it, it may start to, to change people's perspectives. Yeah, But I, the... I also think this idea of scientific smugness, too, you, I think you hit it right on the head. That, And I think social media is a way that it's very easy to be smug, right? Twitter mm -hmm. is – it's outstandingly easy to be snarky, 
right? Because yeah. in the 280 characters, yeah, you can you can be pretty mean. It's much harder to be honest and nice and accept that some people have differing ideas and, and you want to have a conversation. Uh, but when you do that, I've always found that the, the reward is that some people that may initially come to you uh, with snarkiness, if you don't, if you provide a, a more measured response that's honest and and supportive, uh, that people people actually want to have those conversations. Yeah, I, I struggle with this personally because I grew up in the in the tri-state area, and in the tri-state area, the way that I communicate with other people is like, I I don't know where did you grow up, Mike Pollan? Uh, California. Okay, so maybe <laughs> the way you communicate is different, but the way I like to communicate is like the. How do how do you even describe it? Almost like you're 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 bashing other people, but out of love. It's like the you know oh, yeah. the way you communicate with your friends is like you make fun of them, but you make fun of them because you appreciate them, and that's the way in which you find um, a common thread and a common bond. And sure. I have a tough time translating that to social media because that doesn't work well in the absence of context. And so yeah. I think a lot of times, if you look at my Twitter, a lot of my tweets might come off that way as like a, a smugness or, um, you know, that sort of, of way of communicating. But that's it's 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 just um, when you take the context away, the way in which I communicate with people can just sometimes seem like I'm I'm kind of being an ass. Yeah, I I know what you mean. It's and it's such a hard thing to suppress because I think it comes so naturally, you know, to want to make a sarcastic comment or something like that. But especially on uh, email, social media, things like that, you can't convey tone very easily. And, and something that, if it was spoken, might be obviously sarcastic and, and meant to be funny can come off very differently if it's just written, uh, just typed out in a, in a tweet. Yes, that's why I, I appreciate the show so much is because I think it gives people an opportunity. One of the best things I think science can do for itself and this show is an effort to do that, is it humanize itself. That's one of the things I try to do. Is like you can't – you can right. start to picture that these scientists are just people. It's not like the go a government entity. It's not a cyborg. It's not a you know someone who's afraid to talk to other humans. It's not someone that you'll never meet or never see. They're just ordinary people doing an ordinary job, and, and they have a passion for it. And when you can convey that to other people, I think that they'll understand the pursuit a lot more. And they'll appreciate what you do, and they'll appreciate how hard it is, and they'll appreciate your output. They'll say, this is a good guy. I trust what he's telling me. I trust that he's not going to try to screw me over. Um, and, and I think that that's a good – that's what we should aim to do. That's why I like this medium so much. Yeah, the, the human connection is, is hard, and science has kind of this ivory tower, unreachable reputation, right, which is mm – -hmm self-promoted by scientists in, in many ways. Um, yeah, and in, so in cases did, it's true. You know, you, you're an outlier in that you respond to these emails because a lot of people don't. Yeah, and I, I think that's the just the, the wrong thing. You know, I mean, it it's part of it's part of being human, right? I mean, people yeah. have natural questions. And I know I have questions about archaeology and astronomy and so forth. And and uh, I'd like to be able to go to people that I know will will provide me the best kind of information. But I think this is part of why maybe some uh, conspiracy type things or alternative viewpoints, however you want to phrase it, can can flourish because the people that uh, know some of these subjects best are sort of unwilling to to share their knowledge or um, you know they they cede that ground to 
to other people. And, uh, and that's where misinformation can, can really grow. Yeah, you said you, you gave a talk. And I don't know where you gave the talk or what the what the the um what the talk was for, but the talk was called uh, "Science Friction" with a little, mm-hmm. you know a uh, nice play on words. Go go watch it, people. It's a it's a it's a fascinating talk, and you you say a lot of stuff in it. One of the things you say is something we just talked about, which is that if you don't trust USGS, go talk to anyone else. Go talk to the people at your local university. Go talk to you know scientists mm-hmm. online. Go go talk to anyone you want to. That's a, a, a fascinating thing to say, and it's exactly what I think you should say. Another thing you say is that the conspiracy theorists, the people with alternative facts, um, we'll call them fake news, they found a home on the internet way before scientists did. Yeah. And they found – and I, I've been thinking about this a lot in the past months about, number one, how do we get that ground back? And number two, how did it even begin? Some of it is negligence on the behalf of the scientist, I think. We just didn't take mm-hmm. advantage of the medium when it when it came about. But I think the other aspect is something you just touched on, and it is that we as a community um, have left a lot of people feeling not heard or outed. Yes. And we're not willing to speak to them or talk to them or discuss things with them. And because of that, they go online onto forums and they find other people who think like them mm-hmm. and they can get together and and then they all have one common theme they were they were cast aside by a community of people and that community of people happen to be scientists and so now you you have a group of people who it's not even always necessarily that they believe the science is wrong but it's that they don't trust the people telling them that the science is right right and that's yeah. a dangerous thing yeah i i think there's a there's an a scientific arrogance that's pretty easy to to succumb to um you know it, it, how many times have i been in yellowstone when someone has asked me oh so when's it going to blow mm-hmm. you know there's you know two ways i could respond to that one would be you know to sort of roll my eyes and walk away and the other is to engage in what is sort of an honest question you know i mean right. it's sort of a, a kind of kind of trite but um mm-hmm. But you know, this is what most people understand, and and this may be asked by a person that honestly wants to know. They're not trying to you know push my buttons or anything like that. So just sort of rolling my eyes and and you know trying to come up with some one-liner response is not helpful, and only uh, kind of perpetuates that sense that yeah, you know, arrogant scientists. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that that's one thing that maybe we we haven't been as good at, but hopefully are getting better at is understanding that there are honest questions, and and we really owe the people that ask these questions honest answers. Yes, and I think that there is room to to do science outreach in ways unimaginable to people maybe twenty years ago. I encountered Absolutely. this a lot. Um, so I I remember. Are you a fan of any sports? Oh. Goodness, yes. <laughs> yes. What's your? What are your top? Are your hockey's top my hockey's my top one. NHL, yeah. 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 Which uh, team do you support? Oh, uh, the Arizona Coyotes. <laughs> okay. Well, they're what are they like? Middle of the pack this year? Not doing so hot. Uh, they were doing well. They're gonna come back. Yeah. It'll be okay. <laughs> Season's almost over though, so you better recoup quick. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I live like right near Buffalo. So. Um, not a Sabres fan, Bruins fan, but that's t- different story. Um, the 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 point is, if you love sports, so presumably you know what sports radio talk is like. 
the way that it's almost like what I described earlier, where you're like bashing other people and you're like um, sarcastic and, and all of this sort of tone. And that's the way you talk. And that's the way I talk a lot, all the time. And so I remember one of the first episodes I ever recorded. I don't know why, but in the intro, I started talking about Philadelphia and how Philadelphia is the worst city that ever existed <laughs> on the planet. I don't know why people live there. And I was go I was going on like that. And to me, it's clearly sarcasm. Philadelphia's a great place. Whatever, go there. Their football team, terrible. Never support them. Um, see, I can't even get through the sentence without it coming out. Um, and the, the person whom I recorded with reached out to me and was like, I don't want to be on this episode. I want you to edit that part out with the Philadelphia. And, and it was so odd to me because – and this was a, a person who had been in the field for a very long time. They were um, in their 90s. And they had a very – I could tell that they had a very, um, a very rigid idea of what science communication should be. And I think as, a, as someone in my position that that actually hurts scientific communication. I think that you need to borrow some of the ideas from people who are incredibly popular, like sports talk radio, people who are animated and who are, are going to make you laugh and who are going to entertain you, but also be willing to teach you stuff. I think that that is the way I try to do scientific communication, and I find a lot of people who are almost against it and they think it should be um, essentially an assimilation of facts that you should lay out for people, and, and I wholeheartedly disagree, and it's gotten me... I wouldn't say in trouble, but it's it's had many people either turn down the show because of it or or not want to be involved or make me want to retract stuff. And it's it's never like I'm even saying anything that in my mind I perceive to be bad. I'm not like cursing. I'm not telling someone to, to F off. I'm not telling someone that, that – sometimes I tell people they suck, but that's because they live in Philadelphia. But other than that, you know, it's like – oh. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from conversation because something funny just happened. I don't know if you heard that noise, but that was the noise of a Skype hangup. So this happened at like the perfect time where I thought, I thought that Michael Poland also was upset by me saying things about Philadelphia and decided to exit the conversation because I had been talking a while. I had been saying a lot of things. And he hadn't said something in a long time. But that's because he had disconnected from the conversation. He heard most of what I said, but then he his connection dropped off. So that's why I didn't edit this out, because I thought it was such a funny timed event. And this was the only interruption we had the entire time, and it just so happened to be at that perfect time. Back to the conversation. I thought, I thought for a split second, a split second, I was like, Oh my God, does Mike not want to be associated with saying bad things about Philly either? Did he just quit? You know, <laughs> I was like, oh no, is he an Eagles fan? What is happening? Um, so, okay, thankfully that's not the case. We can all agree Philadelphia Eagles, not a good football team, hopefully. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, so I was saying that like I have a different uh, method of doing science communication. And I think that I borrow that a lot from the way I, my upbringing uh, the things I like, I, I do science in almost a sports communication way where I like am very animated and I'm very – I can be loud and I can be um, a little bombastic. And people don't want to be associated with that I notice because they, they have a rigid idea of what science communication should be. And I've had people turn down the show because they, they say listen to an episode and, and they maybe didn't like that 
it was more of a conversation or more of an animated conversation and wasn't just sort of an assimilation of facts. And it's it's odd to me, and I don't I haven't yet wrapped my head around it and understood it. But the the point is, I think that there's such a opportunity to do mm-hmm. this in different ways, and people are not open to it yet, and it's weird. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that we don't get training in as scientists is communication. Right. And so, you know, this kind of thing can be uncomfortable. Um, and then when you're tapped to do an interview or podcast or talk to a reporter or something like that, uh, that's not something that is something we're maybe expected to do. It's not something we're typically trained to do. And so I can understand how it might be very uncomfortable um, to have it be a kind of outside of that classroom question and answer sort of sort of setting. Mm-hmm. But this is something where you know we we need to address this sort of thing because if we aren't able to communicate our science, what good is it? We we really exactly. have to uh, do it do that right, um, yeah. not ignore that or or do it in a in a in a halfway sort of manner. So do you do anything? Uh, what like what what are your if you don't mind me asking, what are your main? Because I noticed some common themes amongst mm-hmm. the scientists that I feel do the best communication. I notice common themes about what they do outside of work. What are you? What do you do? What are your main hobbies outside of, of studying volcanoes? Uh, um, I feel like a lot of my free time is work now because I, I do try to answer all these questions. But for pure fun, um, I enjoy baking, which – okay. Um, but the the thing that I, I really uh, – and then I, of course, I love getting out and, and hiking and uh-huh. exploring and, and, and things like that. But one of the things I do uh, uh, that really takes my mind off of whatever – you know, problems I might have is I, I, I play ice hockey. Um, I'm a, a goalie. I'm lousy. Uh, but I love being on the ice and, and playing in these games where, you know, your focus is just on stopping the puck. And what I, what I team do you play a, for? Uh, I, I sort of play pickup games. I, I travel a lot, so I'm not on a, a dedicated team. Right. But there's always pickup games going on, and I can, I've, you know, get in on those a couple times a week. That is so um, cool. See, this it's is this is why I really ask fun. because, like, I, I consider sports to be an art. I, it's an art form <laughs> in in my in my mind. Um, if you break down games, I I think that there's a lot of art there. And I notice that the scientists that I communicate with that are invested in some form of art, whether it be um, what you're talking about, whether baking even is something that's con- that I would consider a form of art, um, <laughs> what, or music or comedy. All of the people who are invested in stuff like that. I noticed are most open to talking to other people. And hmm. what what I tend to notice actually is that it seems to be the scientists who are, are we'll say younger in their career that tend to be that way. And it might be the fact that, you know, you have more of a sort of work life environment now when you work at a lot of these organizations like USGS or you work at a university, there's more emphasis put on on you spending time doing the thing you like to do outside of work. Whereas yeah. By all accounts, in other generations of, of scientists, that that wasn't the case. It was more or less, you're going to work 80 hours this week, and this is going to be your life. <laughs> well, I, I think to an extent, I, I fall into the latter category there because I, yes. I end up – this really is, is my life. But Yes, um, but is that by choice or by mandate? It's a choice, yes. right? I mean I, I, I – see you know questions people email me questions about yellowstone or whatnot and i i can't not answer that sort of becomes this uh overriding thing like i've got to i really need to answer this question 
Um, I don't want to let it sit and wait around. And, uh, you know, occasionally it, it, you know, if I, if I go to sleep without answering someone's question, it's going to bother me all night. So, um, but that's why I think I need some of these other outlets too, that sort of take my mind off of it, running, playing sports, um, baking, being in the kitchen, going for hikes, things like that, uh, help you to sort of refresh. Now I agree a hundred percent. Uh, sports are my thing, my outlet. I absolutely am a crazy sports fan. Um, <laughs> I love going to games. I love screaming my head off. I love, I love it all so much. Um, and I, I, I think it is, I think it is good for my ability to talk to people because mm-hmm. in a weird, when you're at a game, you're surrounded by all these people and you're talking to random strangers and, uh, you know, a lot of times if you, you get to know someone at a football game, before long you're going to know what they do for a living. And it at times can turn into science communication. And I, th- right. I think it's one of the, the very interesting aspects of, of doing things out other than work and, and communicating with people. Yeah, and actually you, you start right off the bat with a, a common – uh, point of reference, you know, you're sort of there screaming for the Bruins, say, yeah. um, and so you have that that common linking point right off the bat, and and that's something that's actually maybe hard to come by in what's obviously a, a more and more polarized world where we define ourselves by you know, political stances or candidates we like or don't like or whatnot. It's uh, you, you start off in a sort of a contradictory mode whereas you know if you meet someone at a game or at you know in the park or something like that you instantly start off actually on on common ground that's a much better way to start a conversation yeah i agree you mentioned uh since we're talking about conspiracy theories this is a question i get a lot (laughs) and i get this i get this one and i never know how to answer it so i'll ask you i assume you'll get it too climate change caused by volcanoes do you get that one oh yeah quite quite a lot um because I and I see it online sometimes. Oh well, the Kilauea eruption of 2018 released more sulfur dioxide than all of humanity over all of time. Mm-hmm. I saw that claim circulating, and I thought, well, I wonder where where that came from. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that eruption released a lot of sulfur dioxide. It's nowhere near what humans have uh, put out, much less what yeah. we put out over the entire existence of humanity. So um, I, I do run into that. And uh, it's that's a that one is so fraught, right? Climate change, people have sort of dug their heels in on on certain things. And, and they're told perhaps by people that may sound reputable that oh, volcanoes emit more CO2. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something we can measure. And we know that's not true. Humans emit more CO2 than volcanoes do. It's not to say volcanoes don't emit CO2, but we measure it. And uh, and those numbers just don't lie. Um, one thing I found, though, is is that uh, I, I engaged with somebody about this in, in one of the social media platforms that USGS Volcanoes runs. Um, you can occasionally find that there are people in the scientific community that are trusted. Uh, in this case, it was a, a person who was uh, did a lot of online lectures and, and was really beloved. Uh, and... Um, and this person had mentioned them. Oh, I really like this guy's lectures. And, and so I said, well, why don't we ask him the question then? You, know, you trust him. You don't trust USGS for you think we're making things up for whatever reason. And, of course, this person comes back with, yeah, you know, humans emit way more carbon dioxide than volcanoes. We know this because we measured it. So this is one of the reasons I think uh, there can be some, some mutual support because if uh, we – 
engage and, and support one another in these kinds of conversations, we can begin to at least make sure that the, the facts, the scientific facts are well represented and not being uh, twisted or, or misinterpreted somehow. Yeah, I agree. Do you try to track down, like in the case of the, the claim about sulfur dioxide, do you try to track down the origin of that? Because I had a situation recently where I, I did this, and I'm curious if you do it. Well, you know, occasionally I've, I've tried. Um, sometimes it leads you to some Reddit forum or something like that. And, right. and you know, I, I mostly have given up unless it comes from a, a really reputable, reputable source. So I mean, mm -hmm. as a mainstream type source or, or, or source that's easy enough to, to identify um, something that gets sort of mashed in the retelling and that kind of game of telephone is right. sort of impossible to track down. Um, so generally I don't, unless it's something that is very, um, blatantly a source of misinformation. That is something that I'm, I'm directly having to deal with. Um, an example is a, a couple of years ago, there was some, some research that suggested that the last big explosion of Yellowstone was preceded by a few decades of mixing in the magma chamber. Uh, and Within 24 hours, the news cycle had turned that from, you know, this this is what happened 630,000 years ago to Yellowstone will erupt by 2030. And that was when I did try to track down because I had to address this massive pile of questions that just started pouring in. You know, Yellowstone's going to erupt. What are we going to do? And it came from both media and, and the public. And by finding kind of the source of where this message went wrong, you can contact that media outlet and say, hey, I think – you may have misinterpreted some of what was said here. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't try to do it for every every little question that, that comes in because so much of it just is, you know, it, it starts maybe with a conspiracy theory that then gets mashed in the retelling. And, and now you're just, you know, it, it's impossible right. to, to sort where some of that stuff came from. Yeah, I uh, I did this recently. I tend to do this when it's something that, that I read and I immediately think that doesn't make logical sense. You know, like that number. I don't know if I believe that number. I do that a lot, right. and then I try to track right. down. And I did this with the Australian wildfires. If you remember, there was all of this mm -hmm. um, media about how over a billion animals had been killed. And now I'm not an ecologist. I'm not a biologist. I don't work with animals. I don't work with ecosystems. So I don't know what a billion animals looks like. But I something was fishy with that number in my brain. I'm like, a billion? That's a lot of animals to die. A billion animals. So I was curious about that, and I tried to track down that claim. And it turns out that it was initially published by a professor, a, a, someone respected in the field, uh, out of the University of Sydney, I think it was. But they, they were careful when they published that number to say a billion animals affected by the wildfire. And mm, as far right. as I can say, as see, affected meant that they were affected by having to relocate their habitat, smoke inhalation... You know, not burning to death in the Australian bushfires. And I, I find it so interesting how something like that can, over time, spin and, and coagulate into something that is completely different. Yeah. yeah. That's that game of telephone. That, yes. You know, a few, few times of retelling and suddenly it's, it's taken on a completely different meaning. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask you, because a lot of these conspiracy theories about Yellowstone – Hinge on this idea that at any moment Yellowstone can blow up and it could sure. be catastrophic and it could kill everyone and and it could hurt you know 
millions of people in in the region around Yellowstone. Will can first off, what will be the precursors that you will see prior to an eruption? Okay, so in general, the kinds of precursors are pretty diverse, which is why we have a fairly big volcano monitoring toolkit. We would see uh, changes in patterns of seismicity, changes in patterns of ground deformation, changes in how gas emissions uh, come out of the ground, both the composition Mm -hmm. of the gases and their volumes. Uh, We would see changes in the patterns of thermal emissions. And Uh, over what time scale would you see these sorts of changes? It really depends on the the size of the impending activity. Um, very small bits of activity can pre- be preceded by very little change. So, mm-hmm. for example, if it were just going to be a steam explosion, um, there may not be that much warning at all. Uh, it might only be a few minutes of elevated earthquake activity, for example. Um, but then, of course, the area that's affected is correspondingly smaller. And that, that could still be quite dangerous if mm-hmm. it occurred in a, in a place where there were a lot of people, right. Old Faithful, something like that. Um, but for the bigger eruptions, you have to mobilize a lot of magma, um, and you've got to get it up to the surface. That doesn't happen without some fairly significant uh, changes that are very detectable. So. I've gotten that question from people where they've said, well, you don't know that you know, Yellowstone wouldn't have a major explosion tomorrow. No, mm-hmm. actually, I do know that Yellowstone will not have a major explosion tomorrow. No way. There's no way you can move that much magma up to the surface, which is, you know, it's got several kilometers to get to the surface. And, and right. most of the magma chamber at Yellowstone is solid anyway, without causing massive amounts of deformation, seismicity well in advance. Yeah, I wanted and, to mention what, what you just what you just talked this the solid part. Um, sure. I've seen many geologists saying Yellowstone probably cannot erupt at all, um, given its current crystallization of, of magma right. tubes. Can you speak to that? Um, that's true. Uh, the magma chambers there's, – so there's a stacked magma chamber system beneath Yellowstone. The upper reservoir, based on seismic waves that are passing through it, we can measure the speeds of those waves and get an idea of um, how much of it's molten. Something like 5 to 15% of the upper reservoir is molten. The lower reservoir is even lower. It's like something between 2 and 5% is molten. Mm-hmm. So that's not – you know, it, when we, we, the one thing we don't know is how that magma is distributed throughout the reservoir. Is it in a single pocket or is it kind of spread out in a kind of a network of mushy stuff? Um, so it's, it's difficult to know uh, whether or not there are pods that are eruptible. But on the whole, 5 to 15% of melt is just not enough for the magma chamber itself to be considered in an eruptible state. It's mushy, crystalline, mostly solid. So this, again, this idea that, yeah, it's going to erupt tomorrow you just it, it's not really that, that's not the way that, it's not the way it works sometimes i think back to the commercial where some woman saying that's not how this works that's mm-hmm. not how any of this works yeah. and and sometimes that's how i feel like i'm i'm trying to to speak to people about this when when they say oh well you you don't know you know it, there's a lot that we don't know but there's a lot we do know too we've been studying this sort of thing for a long time and, and it's not as if we're completely uh, uh, blind to the kinds of things that volcanoes do. So we, while, we, while we have a lot to learn, we have learned a lot, too. 
And that's knowledge we put into practice with how we monitor volcanoes, not just Yellowstone, but around the world. Have you thought doing like, a, have you thought about doing like something like a skit? Um, like what you just talked about where you, where you come up with a, a, a clever <laughs> skit to describe what you just said. I had a, a physicist on the show um, who, who maps Greenland and he has a, a, a YouTube channel that he's pretty successful for. And he makes music videos under the pseudonym uh, Climate Elvis. And <laughs> he dresses up like Elvis and he sings songs about climate change and about how it works. And he makes these elaborate skit videos and, and, and they're, they're fun. And he's like a, he's a comedian and he's a, a, an improv guy. And it attracts a lot of viewership. And I think it's a good idea. Have you thought about doing something like that? Um, I actually haven't. That's, that's sort of an, an interesting idea. Um, I've mostly focused on doing informative lectures and trying to make them entertaining, you know, not just sort of these mm -hmm. dry science lectures. Um, going around to uh, areas around Yellowstone and, and giving talks and answering questions. Uh, trying to do some things online that are different. Like we did a Facebook Live thing a few years ago. We should we should try to do that again. Um, I've tried to do more videos uh, because that seems to be a format that people like and, and we haven't done much of. Uh, I haven't so much thought about a skit, but that's sort of an, an entertaining idea. The challenge is always just the time that a lot right. of this requires. It's uh, yeah. would, it's would, it's difficult to know the best ways to do things. Would you like to see organizations like the I don't maybe the USGS already does this, but I know universities certainly don't hire people specifically for outreach, like an outreach coordinator whose sole job is to come up with clever ways to tell the story of the people working at the organization. Well, we do have some some outreach coordinators, but the the portfolio they have to manage uh, is humongous. Right. Um, so, for example, I can tell you, uh, I'm based at the Cascades Volcano Observatory um, and sort of the facility where I'm at, and we have a couple of outreach people. Um, one of them has really focused on volcanic hazards mm -hmm. uh, and making people aware of those hazards, and that's especially true in the Rainier area. Because there are a couple of communities that are basically sitting on few hundred to few thousand year old mudflow deposits. Right. So we know mudflows impacted those areas that communities are actually built on. So there's been a tremendous effort to go into those communities and in a very personal way explain the hazard and help people prepare to deal with uh, any potential future occurrences. That in itself, just for Rainier, is a full-time job, much less the other major volcanoes in the in the Cascade Arc. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's uh, uh, another um, outreach person that kind of manages social media accounts, does videos um, for the entire program, which includes Hawaii, Alaska, California, Yellowstone. So um, it, it's we have people that that do this, but they're the, the second they're hired. They're completely overwhelmed with uh, with the tasks that we already have to do, and th this is a this is a challenge sort of program wide. I don't understand you know the the best mix of people because you know you hire an outreach person that's great. There's a ton of things to do. You may not be able to hire then an IT specialist who you need to make sure the data are flowing, or right. the scientist to interpret the data, or the field technician to go out and make sure all of the field equipment is actually working. So it's a it's a delicate balance and. Uh, and it's it's an I think that's one of our bigger challenges is understanding the right mix of people to make sure we can do everything most effectively. Yeah, I agree 100. percent And and I think that's 
hopefully my my show will aid people in that because it gives you you don't no one pays me to do the show um like in terms of no you, the usgs doesn't pay me to have you on the show but ideally it it you know gets you a lot of eyeballs and ears um listening to to what you have to say and so hopefully you know that that helps and i like to see you taking advantage of it because not all organizations do nasa is a big one who who has i've had numerous people from nasa um tell me they're not allowed to do something like this they're not allowed to do um an open sort of conversation this way and that they would have they would require things like a list of questions that they would have to answer or um or uh, oftentimes i get i'm allowed to come on the show but i'm not allowed to talk about what i do in my day-to-day operations you know i get that a lot and it's huh. it's very odd to me and i i don't understand i can't grasp it and i i think it's a it's a big hurdle i don't understand why it's there but i appreciate you not being that way oh my pleasure i'm you know it's always fun to me to talk volcanoes and and if you talk to some of the friends i have they'll tell you that me talking is not it's not a problem <laughs> um i need to be reeled in not not told to go do yeah. it yeah what all right you you mentioned that you give a lot of talks what mm-hmm. is the worst talk you've what was the worst experience you ever had in a, while giving a talk do you have a really bad one uh i did have a talk i was giving it, it wasn't a public lecture it was to a bunch of scientists but i suddenly realized that um i needed to use the restroom in the middle of the talk oh yeah oh it wasn't that's a going bad to one. wait and you had to just and, leave uh, yeah i i i basically said and eh, i'll be back in you know a couple minutes <laughs> and the, the the real unfortunate thing was i was in a room where the the restroom was literally a door that was right there by the podium so there was really no doubt at all what was going on oh man that yeah, was somewhat but, uh embarrassing but you know you got to own it right you know i didn't come back and act like you know it didn't happen nothing had happened yeah. right i had to you know make some i i make some vaguely clever remark to get people laughing and and that's also a humanizing sort of experience right i mean yes this kind of thing happens to us but that can i be honest though that is one of my worst fears ever <laughs> It really is. That's one of like that's one of the things I always think about. Like, am I gonna have to go to the bathroom during this talk? That's one of the things that always comes into my mind. I, I never thought about it until that happened, and now I I sort of uh, approach talks thinking carefully about how I feel and what I had for dinner. Oh yeah, like you just bred the day before, just making sure. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ooh, that is a ba- that's a bad. You don't that touches me so deeply because that is such a fear of mine. Okay, okay so transitioning out of that. Um, I know that that you know there's so many ways in which you can can study volcanoes, and there's so many ways in which you do study Yellowstone. And and we talked about earlier that there are these many metrics you can use, which seem almost primal or instinctual, but mm-hmm. those maybe don't teach you much about what's happening below the surface, what's truthfully happening below the surface. And so one of the ways in which you and and this is interesting to me, one of the ways in which you actually learn about the way magma is flowing beneath the surface of Yellowstone or any volcano is by measuring gravity, right? Mm -hmm. 
So can you break that down for a listener? Yeah, sure. This is um, kind of the crux of a lot of the, the research I've been doing lately, not just at Yellowstone, but in other places like Mount St. Helens and Kilauea and so forth. So the, the we can actually measure the gravitational field down to an absurdly precise level. And that gravity field, you know, in high school physics, we're sort of taught the gravitational acceleration is 9.8 meters per second squared, and that's a constant. Mm-hmm. That's not really true because it depends on how far away from the center of Earth you are, like if you're on a mountain versus in a deep valley. And it also depends on what's beneath your feet. If there is something that's incredibly dense beneath you, like a deposit of metals, for example, then that greater mass will pull a little stronger than if there's something that's not very dense beneath you, like a bunch of, uh, say, loose sediment. So you can measure the gravitational field uh, over an area and get a sense of what the subsurface looks like, whether there's, uh, and this has been used in exploration for a long time to look for things like ore deposits or or oil, gas, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, the way we use it in volcanology, we, we can do this this sort of gravity mapping to get a sense of what the subsurface looks like. But I'm particularly interested in how the gravitational field changes with time. So you can imagine if there's a, a magma body that if it begins to fill with magma, it might push the ground up as more and more stuff comes in, like a, an inflating balloon. It, it causes the surface to inflate. But it'll also cause the gravity to increase because the mass is increasing. So by measuring the gravity over time, you can get a sense of how the mass beneath the surface might be changing. And there's an important uh, distinction here, um, important capability that, that gravity gives you that others don't. And that's this fundamental physical uh, uh, law that mass is conserved. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you're adding magma to a magma chamber, um, all of the things being equal, you would think it should cause the surface to inflate. But magma also has little bubbles in it of gas. So magma is compressible. So you can actually add magma to a magma chamber and not inflate. It's a bit like a, you think of like a scuba tank. Um, if you add a whole bunch of air to a scuba tank, the scuba tank itself is not going to inflate by something that is going to be particularly obvious. But the mass will increase because you're adding more air to it. Right. Maybe not by much, but mm-hmm. it'll, it'll increase. So magma chambers can be like that. There is also a lot of void space um, beneath the surface. I'm not talking about giant, cavernous, empty things that are you know miles deep. I'm thinking more like networks of interconnected cracks. And if those fill with magma, you won't cause any deformation, but you'll still see a mass increase. So uh, measuring the gravity can provide some insights into what's happening beneath the ground that might not be possible any other way. So how do you measure the surface gravity? Do you do it from space or do you do it from the ground? It, it can be done from space. Uh, there have been a couple of instruments that have been uh, in orbit that have measured gravitational field, but they are looking at huge changes like the mass of the Greenland ice sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, they generally don't have the spatial, resu- spatial resolution that you need to get down to what's happening on the small scale of an individual volcano. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask you about, actually. Yeah. I, so we, we typically make all these measurements um, on the ground, uh, and we use a gravity meter, um, which in principle is an incredibly simple device. It's basically a spring with a mass on the end of it. Mm-hmm. And if you take this device into a place where 
gravity pulls a little stronger, then that string get that spring rather gets pulled a bit more. That mass gets attracted to the the uh, the, the massive thing below the ground. You go to a place where uh, there's not as massive a, a deposit beneath the ground, and the spring is stretched a little less. So basically, by measuring how this spring stretches in different places or over time, you can get a sense of of what the gravity is and, and how it changes. So do you go out in, in the in the field, we'll call it, in Yellowstone, and what mm-hmm. periodically, how often? Well, at Yellowstone, uh, it, gravity has been done since the 70s, really. Um, every and, year or, or constantly? Well, sometimes every year. Sometimes it's been uh, done with uh, gaps between years. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fairly long gap um, before we started to try to do gravity again in about uh, 2017. There had been a, a five-year gap. And part of the reason is we, we'd always had a very challenging time interpreting the gravity from, from Yellowstone. Uh, gravity tends to decay with distance. Uh, and so the deeper a magma body is, the harder it is to see with right. gravity. Mm-hmm. And at Yellowstone, the sense was that perhaps the, the magma body is just too deep to see changes or there weren't any changes happening. Whereas the water table uh, is much shallower and can be a source of pretty significant noise. In, in gravity readings because the water table is fluctuating all over the places. You know, it snows or it rains and that causes the water table to rise as the snow melts and, and goes into the, there's a big lake that changes level by, you know, many feet mm-hmm. um, over the course of a season. So there's a lot of uncertainty in gravity because it can get swamped by noise that would obscure these deeper magmatic signals. So in some places, gravity doesn't work so well. Um, in other places, it works very well. At, at Kilauea in Hawaii, uh, we've learned a tremendous amount um, based on gravity measurements. Um, at Yellowstone, we've learned a little bit, but I think um, that's still sort of fertile ground for, for more exploration. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to do more of at, at Yellowstone while I also continue the, that kind of work in, in other volcanoes as well. Now, would you ever be able to do this? I'm not sure how familiar you are with future missions. I don't even know if NASA's proposing any future missions to to study surface gravity uh, anomalies. <clears throat> but do you know if they are, and if so, will they have the resolution to be able to 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 do what you need them to do? Yeah, I, I think there are some follow-on missions, but uh, there may be some fundamental limitations to what can be sensed right. from orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it just may never have the resolution that we need in order to see things on the scale of an individual volcano. Um, and it's also, you know, if, if they were to design that kind of mission, if it were even possible, you know, some of these, some of the, the physics just fundamentally can't be overcome. But if it were somehow possible, you would maybe be sacrificing the ability to see changes in ice sheet mass, for example, or changes in water storage mass right. over large areas, which mm-hmm. is important for understanding uh, you know how drought may may occur in certain areas, or or how uh, ice sheet changes are are being manifested. So, you know, the, the, you know, there's actually never been a satellite dedicated to monitoring volcanoes, because you would maybe be sacrificing too many other capabilities. So, uh, we tend to try to use the instruments that are up there to do volcano monitoring, even though they're not designed for it in, in most cases. And I think the same is, is true of gravity. If there were some huge changes, like I kind of wonder whether the, the big changes at Kilauea in 2018 might have been visible um, to satellite gravity because they were so big. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, at, at that time in 2018, there wasn't a, an orbital mission. I see. So, uh, you know, going forward, are you interested in 
applying this to to other solar systems. So one of the the int- or not sorry, other solar systems, other planets. One of yeah. the interesting things is, yeah, I could imagine you could take something like the the tools you use to mm-hmm. to measure the surface gravity on the Earth and put it on a rover, or right. or put it on. Now we, we're going to have the Martian Scout, which I feel like would be perfect for this. And the Martian Scout is is just a test mission for now. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It will mm-hmm. soon, if it works, be be used um, much more prevalently. It's a it's a little helicopter essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And you could you could put a, something like that on uh, a rover or on a scout, and it could presumably tell you what's happening beneath the surface on a different planet. Is that something that interests you going forward? I think that'd be pretty neat. Um, I'm not sure it would be the top priority. No, so, of course not. You know, the, the, it, it, maybe the the first priority would be doing an overall gravity map to right. understand you know what the subsurface structure is on a on a gross scale. And so I could see kind of down the line, maybe if there are questions about, for example, how water might move around in the subsurface of Mars, if indeed it does, that's something that could potentially be detected with gravity because you'd be looking at mass changes in the subsurface. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about that in terms of deformation too, like uh, the surface of Venus, which is volcanically active. Does the surface of Venus deform? Uh, Maybe it does. And if so, that's something that we might be able to detect with radar measurements. So wouldn't it be neat to have a, a radar mission uh, to Venus that was capable of detecting surface deformation and what might we see if we if we did that. So, yeah, I think there is kind of uh, the potential to apply some of these, um, these volcano monitoring techniques on Earth to other planets, and, and wouldn't that be amazing? I'm not sure it's the highest priority, but, man, it would be cool. Yes, it, it, would, be, it would be absolutely fascinating. And I hope that we – I know that there's actually some plans in the works – a lot of people are now getting back on the Venus on back on the Venus board and wanting mm-hmm. us to to get back to Venus to get back to mapping Venus to get back to flying around there's some um missions that propose we we put hot air balloons in the surface in the atmosphere of of Venus mm-hmm. and i think all of this is incredibly important and in order to understand Venus you're likely going to have to study the volcanology of Venus um, absolutely yeah and so i i look forward to that. are you a fan of io as well yeah yeah absolutely the most volcanically a, active body in the solar system i think yeah that would be a, a really neat one to to try to understand more of too i mean that that's shooting plumes of sulfur into space right um yeah so more observations there you know we're, we're just sort of scratch the surface with with galileo um seeing more come out of uh, understanding some of these Jovian moons would be would be very cool. Yeah. So can you see yourself moving in that direction in, later in your career into the planetary science direction? Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I, initially, that's what I wanted to do was, was planetary science, planetary geology. And uh, some of the professors that I met with during my undergraduate years sort of said, well, there's, there's not a whole lot of opportunities there. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I, I gravitated towards volcanology. Um, although at the time there weren't that many opportunities in volcanology either, but I think they didn't want to completely squash my dreams. Right. Um, so I, I haven't really thought about it, but I do have a, an awful lot of friends that work with with NASA on on volcanology, and uh, you know at least some collaborations with them might might be kind of a, a fun thing to to entertain at some point. Yeah, it, it's it, every scientist I talk to on the show when I talk about their career, they say something like what you just said. But they're like, my professors, you know, told me that maybe there's not a lot of opportunity there. So I, 
I switched out and I considered doing something else or my parents told me not to do that or, you know, there's always <laughs> something like that. And then I always wonder if you realize, Mike Poland, the position you're in and how incredibly hard and, and um, I don't want to say lucky, but how opportunistic you had to be to get to that position or to get to the point where you're a tenured professor when I talk to other people. Yeah. I'm like – you could have probably pursued music like you wanted to and been a successful musician. You know, I always wonder if people think think about that and realize that. Um, I, I definitely, I definitely think about how lucky I am to. I mean, I think uh, I I did my best to put myself in a position of to course. take advantage yes. of whatever luck would come along, and that's the advice that I most frequently give to to, to young folks and to students is, um, you know, put yourself in a position to take advantage of the opportunities that are going to come along and so in in many ways that's you know my career was made by the fact that um i had prepped myself to take advantage of these opportunities right and i, I do feel incredibly lucky to to have the position mm -hmm. i do i mean i get to um you know talk to people about yellowstone and go try to understand it better i mean that's yeah that's fantastic yeah it's just it's <laughs> it's so it's so cool to me how people um they they decide not to pursue something when they're young because they they don't know if they can you know make a career out of that something, and mm -hmm. then they end up doing something that is equally as hard and not even realizing it, you know. Yeah, it's like what I said with the roller coasters and and ended up being an astrophysicist or your situation. <laughs> I talked to a lot of people you know who who wanted to be musicians and and they ended up being a tenured physicist and it's it's just interesting to me how how that happens. Yeah, it, it's funny. I've I've talked with a lot of people about you know how did did you end up here and and very few of us sort of had decided that this is what we were going to do. I didn't think that I'd be in volcano geophysics at all because physics and math were yeah. hard. Um, and and that's something that I, I like to tell people too. And they say, well, math, you know, I just can't I can't see myself doing anything related to math. So, well, neither could I. And it's not like I, you know, breezed through all of these math classes. Mm -hmm. They were hard, and I still don't understand a lot of it. But, you know, you end up finding something that's really interesting, and that overcomes any, any, you know, desire to quit because math or physics or chemistry or whatnot are, are hard. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. We should wrap this up. You got to get going. Um, it was great talking to you, Mike Poland. I appreciate you. Um, if you want to tell people where they can find the Caldera Chronicles, are interesting. The Twitter account. Anything? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so we've got a the the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website. You can you know Google that, and and uh, we have a, a weekly um, article that is some aspect of Yellowstone history, geology, current events, uh, research activity. So that comes out every Monday, and we also put out a lot of information uh, about Yellowstone, including Caldera Chronicles, on our social media feeds. Um, we have uh, Facebook and Twitter, and that's uh, USGS Volcanoes, all one word. And finally, you know, like I said earlier, I'm always happy to answer questions. So if you'd like to ask a Yellowstone question, you can send it to uh, our, our general email address, which is yvowebteam, which is all one word, at usgs.gov. And that, that goes to several of us that uh, work on Yellowstone and, and then can, can answer whatever questions you might have. Great. So people go there. The links will be below. And uh, I appreciate you for listening. Mike Poland, I appreciate you for being here. And uh, we're out. Okay. Yeah, Mike, thanks so. very much for, for having me on, Brendan. I enjoyed yeah. chatting. Anytime. So the recording's over. I appreciate you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you uh, enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you thought of it. Let me know what you think of Michael Poland. Let me know if when I have him on in the future, say six months from now, there's something else he likes to discuss. The man knows more about volcanoes than any other human in the planet. 
or on any other planet or anywhere else, realistically. So smart. Now, listen, ladies and gentlemen, there's someone out there that deserves to be mentioned. Matt, 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 Matt Trup, Matt Trupshin. I don't know how you say your name, but, but I finally understand something. Okay. I think I get it. Maybe I'm completely off base. But someone left a five-star review on the podcast last week after my episode. And I'm pretty sure my episode, I said, if you don't leave a review, you're a grade A something. I don't even know what I said. Dummy, dumbass. I don't know what I said. I said something like that. And obviously, it's a joke. It's a joke. It's not a joke, but it is. It's not a joke, but it is. And then... This person, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, hey, guy, appreciate the review, love you for it, you're the greatest, but do me a favor and different name, all right? Different name, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying make a new, oh, this is actually a great idea, make a new iCloud account, a new one, a different one, and then rate the show five stars again. That's what you need to do. But this time when you make a new account, make the name something that is better than the one you have. Sometimes there's this thing called changing your username and it exists because sometimes your first time up to bat while making a username, not a good, it's just terrible, absolutely bad. I used to play an internet game and I made the username Lil, L-I-L, space, J, space, 2552. Hey, Brendan, there's not even a J in your name. Why? Would you call yourself Lil J2552? Literally could be nowhere close to anything associated with me ever. That's like a that's going to be a rapper's name in 2047 and I guarantee you it. Lil J255. Yo, did you hear that that track by Lil J2552? Did you hear Ponyboy by Lil J2552? That's going to be a new age rapper probably a couple decades from now. And that's my prediction. But anyway, the point is this person, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, Matt Trupshin, he left a review that said grade A, and I got it because he is gr- a grade A listener. That's what it means. He's a grade A listener. And so that means something. He has sparked a revolution. Now, you have to leave a review on the show, but you don't have to leave a review, just a review. You have to just leave a review that says grade A. You have to rate it five stars and leave a review that says grade A. It's a revolution, grade A. That's what you need to post from now on. So even if you left a review before and you typed out this well thought out thing about, oh, it's a good audio and it's clean and the music and blah, 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 and blah, blah, and the science and I love everything, delete it, new review, type grade A. That's what we need to do. We need to start the grade A gang. We need to start the grade A gang. That's what I'm talking about. The grade A gang. Oh my God. I might have to make t-shirts that say grade A on them. 